Hello, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Hamish Ford. Hi, Toby. Hello, Hamish. Thanks a lot for being here. And Thank tell us what's dynamizing you, preoccupying you, troubling you, interesting you right now. <laughs> well, I suppose like most people, I'm, I'm uh, glued to the, the horror occurring in Gaza. That's taking up a fair bit of my time, I have to say, and the quickly changing geopolitics around that and Ukraine and, and uh, many other parts of the world. I'm, I'm almost ghoulishly fascinated with what appears to be the, the spiralling crisis of our Anglophone hegemon. Um, so that's sort of, if you like, a hobby, a dark hobby at the moment, as I'm sure there's many of us. Um, work-wise, I've been preoccupied with trying, trying to finish uh, a project that you're a past master of, which is an edited volume um, of course, I've taught uh, many of the books that you've co-edited over the years, but this one is due at the publisher in about a week. So um, myself and my collaborator are um, in, uh, I wouldn't say panic mode, but we're certainly feeling the, the pinch. So, um, yes, interesting times. And if I don't have to edit another essay for another few months, that'll be fantastic. <laughs> well, I, I very much appreciate your taking time away from that process in order to chat with us. Can you tell us a little bit about the book or is, are you so sick of it that it'll just <laughs> be an awful experience for you? <laughs> There's a 1% risk of that, but I'll, I'll give it a go. No, it's um, it's actually on a topic that you and I spoke about 20, God, five years ago, I think it was, when we first met and I came over to New York and we had a couple of lunches together um, and I was working on my PhD at the time, which was on 1960s Euro um, feature film modernism. And uh, a big figure, of course, in that was Ingmar Bergman. And so this book that I'm co-editing will be the largest ever volume devoted to his cinema. We are now reliably told in any language. Uh, it's going to feature 35, I think it is, essays wow. um, from all over the world. Um yeah, it's, it's it's kind of a culmination of a relationship that I've forged with a, a now very good friend of mine who teaches um, in the United States, Daniel Humphrey, and I I did one of these weird things where I'd, I'd sort of um, stalked him a little bit online and, of course, was familiar with his work, and then I decided to just shirt front him, as, as one of our horrible former prime ministers would say, but in a friendly fashion, and approach him at a conference and say, look, let's do it, let's get together, let's um, collaborate um, so we did a, a special journal issue on um, Bergman and global reactions to his work, trying to get away from this incredibly Western Europe and Anglophone-centric way that we always speak about his cinema, um, as if it's of no interest anywhere else in the world, uh, which is, of course, the complete opposite of the truth. And we got on really well. So then I said, let's keep going. Let's do a book. Um, so we approached Wiley Blackwell, who luckily had a, um empty slot uh, uh, for Bergman in their um, massive um, sort of definitive uh, volume of, of filmmaker-devoted, you know, reference books. And here we are. So it's, um, yes, it's a big job, as you can imagine. <laughs> now, this is a filmmaker whom you've been thinking about and talking about and writing about for 30 years. Mm. Yes, on and off, on and off. On and um, off. I did. I did have quite a long period away from him, 
And I actually, just before I approached Daniel Humphrey, um, I sort of had a bit of a career crisis where I was finding myself interested in all these other things. And I realised that I had done all this work on his cinema, but I hadn't really consolidated it. And because I didn't have a single monograph or edited volume to my name, I had all these bits and pieces from all over. Mm. And in the 2012 book, I had devoted about a quarter of the book to talking about Persona. But I realised when I went to this conference, uh, it was actually the Bergman Centenary Conference in Lund in Sweden um, a few years ago, and I realised that I hadn't been invited probably because I didn't, actually didn't have a book. And I just sort of thought to myself, I need to try to actually bring whatever skills or, or knowledge of this area that I have to to some kind of fruition. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of a, in some ways a strategic decision, but it, it led to this wonderful collaboration. And it also sort of made me realise afresh how his films do speak to a genuinely global audience. And a lot of the ways that they're received in that audience or among those audiences is actually very different to the way that, that I was often told in the first instance um, you know, his films were supposed to mean to somebody in New York or Paris or London. Could you give us some, for instance, of some examples of that? It would be very interesting to consider what this means in terms of your own experience outside those metropoles, but also mm. the experiences of other analysts, essays, yeah. historians that you've spoken to or are publishing. Well, if you'll forgive me to be a, a tiny bit self-indulgent, one of the, the ways in which Daniel and I kind of bonded is that we did our PhDs at roughly the same time in the 1990s. And he was in the United States. I was in Australia and Sydney at that point. And we both had a very similar experience, which was that all of our lecturers and then our PhD supervisors looked at our desire to watch and write about Bergman with horror. They were absolutely just, you know, almost disgusted and then just completely confused as to why we would be interested in this filmmaker. Because, you know, we're talking about the peak, especially in the Anglophone world of kind of postmodern interest in big Hollywood and, and different ways to read that and, and a rebellion against not only kind of the Marxist and psychoanalytic hegemonies of the 1970s and 80s, but also a perceived canon of European art cinema. And so I fully admit, and, and I've said this so many times to different people, that part of my love of Bergman and Antonioni, I think, is because they were a little bit verboten when I was an undergraduate. You know, nobody wanted to talk about them. Um, I was endlessly studying, you know, Douglas Sirk and, you know, recent Hollywood and somehow Jean-Luc Godard still, you know, snuck through the new, the new anti-canon. But I, I kind of started to seek out these films um, and it led to a sort of a fascination. So fast forward, you know, two or three decades and Daniel and I found when we were editing the um, uh, journal issue three years ago, which is called Bergman World, uh, we found that the reception of Bergman films, number one, had not only been much more consistent outside of the Western world in terms of its kind of being talked about. In other words, it wasn't nearly so hot and cold, you know, almost being excessively celebrated and focused on one moment and then drop like a hot potato and all that sort of, you know, um, sort of fashionable, you know, the fashionable ways in which film culture in Paris and London and New York tend, tend to sort of go. That's the first thing of interest. The second point was that he actually was, his first initial embrace outside of Sweden was actually in Latin America. Um, if I remember correctly, in Brazil. In fact, it was the first time that he was uh, received any kind of award whatsoever. This is in 1948. 
um, for his sort of realist film, A Ship Bound for India. Um, but I think the most important thing, and, and maybe what you were thinking of, is that his films mean very different things in different cultures. And one of the the great, um, in fact, really the premier Bergman scholar, who's, who's only just died actually a couple of weeks ago, Birgitta Steen, who was nearly 100, um, and we were very privileged, by the way, to republish one of her great essays in our volume. Wonderful. Um, she, she did this groundbreaking research about 20 years ago where, and this should interest you, I think, um, where she ascertained that the way in which, say, French critics speak about Bergman is very similar. They all say almost the same thing. And then the way Italian critics also say nearly the same thing, but it's very different to what the French, French critics say. And she noticed this across multiple different national critical contexts that people were basically kind of echoing and almost robot-like kind of repeating cliches about Bergman, but they were different cliches. And so I guess the nub of it for us and the most fascinating thing was that we were always told one of the reasons why Bergman's of no interest is because he's a bourgeois filmmaker. He's a filmmaker who makes quintessentially middle-class art house cinema and there's not a radical bone in his body in terms of the films and their interests. But then we find in India and in Latin America, that's not how they saw his films at all. So, for example, in our volume, we have an essay from Chile about the way in which his films were received there. And, of course, the political context there, um, pre-Ayende, during Ayende, and then during the long, horrible Pinochet period, his films became a kind of a beacon in a weird way, um, among with, with many others, of course, for what they viewed as a kind of rebellious and in some ways even radical way to kind of think about politics and also think about the crisis of the individual. Um, interestingly enough, just to, just the final point I'll say is that, of course, when uh, a more conventional free market was restored uh, with democracy in Chile, Bergman's films and art cinema fell out of favour completely because, of course, it's very, very difficult, really impossible um, in a much more hardcore market environment. So one of the sort of ironies there is that under Pinochet, in a way, there was still a little bit of state support for film culture. <laughs> um, so I guess that's just, you know, a couple of examples. So the, particularly the politics of the films are read very differently depending on who's doing the watching and reading. And when you go back and look at them now, mm. do you see them differently having read yeah. so much from different national and other cultural perspectives? I think so. I mean, one of the challenges, I think, for those of us outside of Sweden is to understand um, the way in which the films are a product of their moments and their cultural and political era, because there's actually a lot of minutiae in there. It's just that it's buried for most of us who are not familiar with the language and super, super, you know, uh, astute scholars of Swedish kind of culture and politics. Um but also, of course, the way in which his films were received in Sweden at the time is fascinating as well, um, particularly his relationship with the left, which was very vexed and, and in all kinds of ways. So to me, I think, you know, one of the, the great things about his cinema is that it does, you know, on, on the one hand, it seems to represent certain sorts of human experience that do transcend cultural difference in a, in a very intriguing way, considering Again, as we are often told, they're only about privileged white Europeans for privileged white Europeans. And if that's the case, then why are they so popular in parts of the world where very few people are of this 
um, you know, uh, sort of background. Um, so, you know, to me, watching a film like Persona, which I actually teach every year, it's it kind of changes every time I watch it. You know, um, sometimes I, I view it as like an angsty, um, sort of a very angsty film about intense, almost teenage relationships. And a lot of my students latch onto it in this way. You know, they can relate to having a, a friendship um, that kind of went sour, was also kind of tinged with eros and violence and where things just went wrong and identities got kind of screwed up. Um, other times I kind of view it obviously as a much more kind of avant-gardist materialist film um, and other times I view it as a kind of really interesting reflection on his own anguished um, position as a Swede, looking at um, not only the history of Sweden as a, as a country independent of Europe in terms of some of the Cold War politics, um, but also even during World War II um, and the fact that Bergman was a teenage admirer of the Nazi party. Um, and then by the time the 60s come along, um, despite all the rhetoric uh, against him, he actually was quite a critic of the US role in Vietnam. So I guess I do increasingly see the films through these different prisms that I'm kind of learning about as, as I get older. And to me, they give the films new life. I mean, you know, I did tire of them for a while. You know, I, I, I studied them, I wrote about them, and then I did want to kind of move on. Um, and I'm very thankful to the scholars that I've got to know and got to edit their work because it's given a whole new lease of life, I think, for me as a, as a lover of these films, but also hopefully for, for the reader as well. Well, it, it sounds like a really exciting project. And obviously it's a, it's innovating rather than exciting right now for you because of all the labels <laughs> you and your co-editor are putting into it. But I'm well, sure... I, I should add that. So, sorry, just, just as a tiny postscript there, um, I can't get too innovated because I actually have another book contract to write my own book on the 60s films. So I need to segue very quickly into that as soon as I've sent this one off to the publishers while I'm in the zone. <laughs> Can you tell us about that one? Uh, yeah, well, that, that's really just born of my, you know, for years I've thought, okay, I need to actually write something myself, um, you know, a monograph of some kind. I do not want to write a career coverage. I find those books on the whole very laborious and, you know, not that interesting. I don't want to just write about one film. I want to write about a, a cycle, sort of a series of films. So I've identified the kind of eight, I guess you could say, modernist chamber drama films of the 60s, and I'm just drawing connections between them. But I'm also trying to draw out, again, based on a lot of great recent scholarship, the ways in which I think his films are, in a way, much more radical than we've often in the West given them credit for, particularly around issues of gender, but also in general, the kind of deconstruction from the inside of an inherently privileged uh, Western modernity, I suppose. Uh, but there'll also be a lot of focus on the Swedish reception as well. Terrific. Now, you keep telling us that you need to write a book. It's a monograph. <laughs> but you already have. Uh, yeah, so there are only one, yeah, thus far. So um, well, Can we go back, back, back a decade or so? <laughs> to talk about mm. that, because it includes one of your interests, along with modernism, as broadly mm. as, which is philosophical approaches to the media. Yeah. So despite the fact that you've tried to hide the fact you already have a monograph, I'm going to push <laughs> you sure. with every bit of goodwill at my well, thank you. considerable command to tell thank us you. a bit about that volume from 2012. 
Well, it was a, a kind of an updating of my PhD that I was researching when uh, we first met in New York. Um, and it was interesting when I started the PhD, as I think I, I complained already about my, my supervisor and all my seniors were like, no one cares about Bergman. And to make it worse, I also wanted to use Adorno. And they were like, nobody gives a shit about Adorno. I mean, this is like 1998 or something. And then I had to point out that there was a whole new series of translations and new, there was a new generation of secondary literature coming out, even in English on Adorno, which my uh, older colleagues at the university seemed unaware of. So happily, by the time I was thinking about turning it into a book, there was quite a resurgence of interest in, in Adorno. And um, Claire Colbrook, you know, the great Deleuze and, and post-structuralist philosopher, was kind enough to be one of my reviewers. And she was especially nice about the fact that I'd managed to make Adorno and Deleuze work in the same book in in certain kinds of ways. So I guess that really was, you know, I don't claim to be a philosopher. Um, I did study philosophy as an undergraduate, but I, I've never published any standalone philosophy or anything. I've just always felt that there's a very rich potential intersection there. Uh, between film and philosophy, and I was fortunate enough in um, about 20 years ago now to be uh, presenting at the very first English language film philosophy conference in Bristol. Um, and it just so happened that among the, you know, seven people who bothered to come to my panel, one of them was one of the conference organisers and she wanted to edit a book based on the conference proceedings. So one of my, I think my earliest published article actually sort of testing out these ideas, particularly the Adorno um, connection, uh, was actually thanks to that volume, which is called New Takes in Film Philosophy. Um, I have to say, though, to be totally honest, and this is probably a bit of a a fading of mine, but I'm a little bit ambivalent in some ways about the film philosophy discourse. Um, But I I guess we could say that about any discourse, right? You know, we have mixed feelings about it. Um, To me... You know, a lot of it is philosophers actually trying to use films to jazz up philosophy. And I don't really have a dog in that race. I'm not I'm not particularly, you know, to me, philosophy should be interesting anyway, right? Um, and so the, the other concern I have is that a lot of the publishing that has come out in the last couple of decades is actually really analytic philosophy. It's kind of people from the United States trying to use analytic philosophy to explain Hollywood, essentially. And that's just not something I'm particularly interested in. So when I've gone to these conferences, um, I mean, I attend those papers. I try to kind of, you know, get get inside of what they're doing. But I have always felt like a bit of an outsider to some extent because my heart really is with the so-called continental tradition. Um, so, you know, I've kind of, I've been a bit marginal, I think, in some ways, but I, I have played a certain role, at least within Australia um, and, its, and its publishing output in this in this area, I think. Indeed. And I think it's important that the in a so-called cognitivist school, which is comprised of people who haven't done quantitative research largely and don't have training in psychology, mm. so we don't show films to rats, for example, yeah. is that essentially they're using rational choice models of how stories are told and how they imagine people respond to them. Yes. And those are mildly interesting things to do, but they don't get at the big questions of ideology, uh, of audience differentiation. Uh, No, no. Obviously things like what filmmakers seek to do in terms of their worldviews 
Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I also just think, in a way, it's an eatable thing. I mean, you know, the the Australian film philosopher Robert Sinnebrink, you know, has just openly written about uh, the David Boardwell, Noel Carroll intervention in the mid-90s as a kind of a palace coup. It was attempt by an attempt by these US-based um, film scholars to overthrow what they view, viewed as the kind of European hegemony when it comes to theory, um, especially the psychoanalytic tradition, but really just what they view as kind of what we'd say in Australia, kind of wanker theory, um, to replace it with this supposedly much more sensible, rational-based model. And their argument is, okay, look, you know, you're not dreaming when you watch a film. So that's part of the problem with psych- psychoanalytic theory. And, you know, I'm not a paid-up member of the Freud Econ Club, so I can I can get down with that critique to some extent. But they, they go too far in the other direction, and they think that we're fully conscious, rational entities when we're watching a film, which to me, unless you're watching a detective film or an incredibly plot-driven Hollywood film, just doesn't jive, you know, in my experience. <laughs> Indeed. It all seems a very long way away to me, but it's something that still preoccupies people. And mm. there are all kinds of ways in which folks have questioned that hegemony that you described of ideology critique and mm. psychoanalytic feminism, for example. Yeah. The one that drew some attention 25 years ago, 30 years ago now, in some cases, mm. or mm. with making meaning, mm. by people, uh, was certainly an interesting critique, but all too often enunciated by, and I'm not referring here to Borbel or Carroll, neither of whom I know, but all too often enunciated by very angry white men screaming in public about how rational they were. (laughs) Anyhow, enough of that. But it's it's also the attempt, I should say, to scientise the humanities. There's a broader current there as well, I think, to sort of delegitimise traditional humanity scholarship, which, again, you know, I'm happy to critique. I mean, goodness, you know, there's so many important ways to critique it. But I think it's part of this push to try to force us to play the science game in, in certain ways that I just I just think we're never going to win that, you know. But sorry, Toby, I interrupted. No, not at all. I, I think that's a really great point. It does bring me to my telling you that I read here that you are Deputy Head of School Teaching and Learning in the School of Humanities, Creative Industries and Social Sciences at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Is that true, sir? <laughs> well, I, I'm happy to say, actually, as of right now, it's it's no longer true. So, yes, I held that position for four years and I sort of agreed to a two-year extension and then as of um, January the 1st, I'm just a regular old academic again, um, representing my discipline, but that's it. I uh, don't have to run any meetings anymore and you have to attend a couple, um, which is great because I've got these book projects breathing down my neck. So, um, yeah, so I, I had about eight, eight years doing that sort of work and that's enough, yeah. Point taken. <laughs> it's often very difficult for people to go back from that sort of work to assuming other scholarly responsibilities, especially if they've been hived off completely from things like classrooms and books. But mm. what I was interested in asking you about was the title of the school, mm. which, as I as I read it here, is, as I said, Humanities, Creative Industries and Social Sciences. 
The creative industry's discourse is crumbling, I think, in yeah. many parts of the world. How is it doing in Australia? And will that part of the title of the school gently be retired in 10 years' time, do you think? Or will it be the title of the school? <laughs> Look, who can tell? Um, but, yes, you're right, of course. I mean, when the School of Creative Industries, which was until two years ago a distinct school, its own school, uh, meanwhile I was in the School of Humanities and Social Science, when the School of uh, Creative Industries was formed and proposed and, and for there to be an undergraduate program to go along with it, many of us pointed out that the wind was not blowing in that direction. Uh, we're talking about seven or eight years ago at this point, or probably closer to 10, I guess, and that really the Creative Industries was a kind of Blairite invention in many ways and that, in fact, the two universities in Australia that still taught it were getting out of the business. Um, so I think in some ways... It's problematic. I think it's too limited. Again, we talked about, or I briefly mentioned, you know, being asked or forced to try to play the science game. I think, you know, the more urgent political challenge, of course, is being asked to play the industry game or the um, justify yourselves in the marketplace um, sort of, you know, call that we all hear across every single university, uh, at least in the first world. So, um to cut a long story short, what happened was the school was not successful. And so we, in the former School of Humanities and Social Science, incorporated, I guess we could say, the most successful elements of the old school in an attempt to sort of save jobs primarily, but also to sort of, you know, make the best of, a, of the situation and to try to learn from each other. Um, it's an ongoing process. I mean, I really like my colleagues very much. There are definitely differences, though, between what is in many ways a, a very practice-based um, model and sort of understanding of education versus, of course, the theoretical and analytical and um, critique-driven one that I guess I come from and a lot of my colleagues come from. Hopefully we can we can be like productive siblings. Mm. Um, so yeah. um, it's a very big school, I should add. It's the largest school in the university. So the other logic to it, I think, was um, safety in numbers that in a STEM-oriented university, which, of course, is true of, of so many now, we can hopefully kind of hold hold the fort, as it were, for, um, you know, the arts in the, in the broader sense of the word um, and the importance of them not only to our kind of everyday lives and, and enjoyment thereof, but also even shock horror to the economy itself. <laughs> which is, of course, one of the arguments that the scions of creative industries pushed. STEM, science, technology, medicine, engineering, etc. right? In terms of yeah. your experience of spending these four years as, in a sense, the school's main person on teaching and learning, what did you glean from that time in terms of what students want versus what mm. they want? Did you pick up things from that? What I think I mainly picked up, and this might sound a bit facetious, is that the university, and I don't mean my university, I just I think this is a, pr a problem across the board. Universities think they know what students want and they behave and they talk and they act as if they know what students want. But what we hear students say often doesn't actually conform to that. Um, so, you know, we're, we're constantly told, for example, that uh, we can't, your know, lectures are ridiculous. Lectures are like this sort of stupid 19th century 
model, we should get rid of them, it's passive learning, you know, all that sort of thing. But every time any of us have actually surveyed students anonymously, they'll go, look, like anything else, a bad lecture is a bad lecture. A great lecture is a great experience. Just in the same way that no academic I know would want to put a red line through ever going to hear a conference paper ever again, you know, let alone a keynote paper. Now, you know, if we allow ourselves the privilege of still listening to somebody speak about their area and hopefully provoke us to new ways of thinking about it, why would we deny our students that across the board? I'm not saying we should have lectures in every single course and stick to, you know, an incredibly traditional mode of learning. But, you know, we shouldn't sort of just chuck everything out. You know, we should be very careful about what we retain and how we retain it. So students, I think, you know, um, they want different things in different contexts. Um, we've gone through different regimes in the university where we're told all students want online learning and then we're told no students want online learning. Well, of course, both positions, both, both positions are completely false. Um, students want it when they need it, but they also want to be able to sit in a classroom um, on a regular basis when they can as well with other, other students. Um, that would also go for assessment modes as well. We're told that essays, of course, are ridiculous and we have to get rid of them. You know, no one ever uses them in the workplace. And again, you know, I would not at all dispute that, you know, there was an excessive amount of essays for a long time in, in many places. But again, you know, I think you need to make the case based on the area, based on what the students may actually want. And let's get them in a room. Let's try to ask them. Um Universities, in my experience, are increasingly top-down, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, and the students don't have much say at all in the way that we operate, and I think that's completely around the wrong way, you know. There should always be students in the room, I think, when any decision is made um, at a university, and my new head of school is actually trying to, to bring that in, um, at least at a school level, which I, I think is fantastic. Um, so I just think it's a mixture. Um, but the really concerning thing, I think, is the increasingly hierarchical, top-down decision-making mode that universities feel like they have to um, kind of go with these days. And so even heads of school, I think, are finding it harder and harder to find wiggle room to be creative and sort of be properly responsive to the people who matter, which really is our students. In terms of the, the wider field of screen studies as broadly construed, let's mm. hone in on that for a moment of film sure. and other media. Mm. What do you see as being the interesting tendencies right now? Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, as, as you would know, film studies often came out of English departments. Um, television studies came out of media studies departments that came later. And so now we've got this sort of question of, well, do you still have film studies? Do you call it screen studies? Um, so my discipline, for example, has just changed its name from film, media and cultural studies to screen and cultural studies, um, partly because of the new fused school where we've sort of, in a way, let communications have the word media. Um, but also, you know, in recognition that we live in a multi-screen world, obviously, where students increasingly don't make much distinction between different audiovisual forms, whether it's a YouTube video or a TV show or film, you know. So I'm I'm quite relaxed about that. I'm not somebody who's particularly sentimental about the word film or the, the, the celluloid or, you know, even cinephilia, although I'm to some extent a product of that world. I feel like I'm sort of in between all these things and have certain investments, but 
I'm, I'm not a stickler for tradition at all. So to me, uh, screen studies, what's interesting about it now is it's so um, amorphous and up in the air. And we're not living through happily, in my view, a doctrinaire phase. Mm. So screen studies, film studies has, at least in earlier phases of my you know, scholarly life, been very faddish indeed, as I already gestured to, I think. So everyone will be reading Deleuze for five years and then, no, we can't talk about him anymore. That shit's old hat. You know, now it's all just got to be about um, context, historical context. We can't talk about individual films. It's only got to be about the reception histories and who paid for the movie or whatever, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, to me, I like the fact that it's a very open field now. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, we've still got the affect theorists kind of borrowing away. We've still we've got the new historians. We've got the new materialism kind of there. Um, we've and that sort of connects often with one of my pet sort of interests, which is phenomenology, film and phenomenology. But I guess I, I don't see it as particularly. Um, I wouldn't say there's like a hegemonic area uh, at the moment. I think the Boardwalk Carroll revolution lives on, and there's still a very strong strain of that, but it's receded a little bit which I think is healthy. Um, to me, I guess, though, the most interesting question is really a kind of a self-critical question, which is around, for example, questions of world cinema. You know, so what world cinema is a fact. Every single country makes films and television. That's just a fact. But is world cinema as a, as a mode of scholarship a bit like Gandhi said about British democracy? It's a good idea. You should try it sometime. In other words, are we actually doing it? Or do we still just endlessly talk about Western films? And I think that's a, a, a really urgent question that we have to keep kind of pushing and pushing. Why do we teach what we teach? Why are we not teaching completely different canons or, or films from countries we've never studied before? And the answer is obvious because we're time poor and we rely on what we've done before. But I think we have to keep asking ourselves these questions. And so to me, world cinema and the interrogation of that reality and the, the scholarship around it is really urgent and an ongoing process. And along with that, of course, is the the critique of the the canon, as it were, which has become very zeitgeisty, especially obviously not you know with BLM and all the other movements, but also with the new sight and sound poll and you know um, Chantal Ackerman now you know having made supposedly the best film of all time with Jean Dielman, and you know we're living. We're living in a period where some of the old canons are shifting, uh, and I think that's fascinating. Again, I don't have a dog in the race. So to me, it's it's an interesting time to be a film scholar because it's so unstable. Mm. So it sounds as though whilst being somewhat less welcoming of some tendencies than others, you are pleased that there's not this either orism as the... Brazilians call it this binarism. Yeah. Uh, Very much. You like people to play well together, Prof Hamish. I think that's what. Well, I'm well, in a way, yes, but in a way, no. In the sense that you know, I <laughs> now I'm going to sound horribly contradictory. I also hate going to a conference where everyone agrees with each other. You know, where we're all just like parroting the same thing and constantly saying how great our work is and how, how inspirational it is to be talking about 11S still and the face of the other or whatever, you know. You know, I in, I want critique. I want, you know, kind of very rigorous kind of critique of our positions, but obviously in that dialectical tradition of hoping to actually lead to some kind of uh, progressive movement um, of some kind or other. 
Um, but yes, I'm, I'm glad that we're not, you know, when I grew up, I was at the very tail end of psychoanalytic film theory, for example, and, and I rebelled against that, but I didn't want to jump on board the boardwall train either. You know, to me, it was like, I agree with some of your critiques, but I don't agree with a lot of what you're proposing. So I refuse to be a campist um, in, in this kind of theory sense. And I don't know if you would agree with this, Toby, but I, I feel like a lot of people in the humanities, especially when they're young, um, tend to often get drawn into camps or there's almost a cultish element sometimes to some of the theory and the philosophy that we're drawn to. Um, and to me, that was never appealing. You know, there's something um, almost religious about it, uh, which I guess I really kind of rejected. And, you know, I mean, you know, when we first met in the United States, I thought of myself as a, as a modernist who was in some ways rebelling against postmodernism. But in New York, I found so much modernism. I, f- I, f- I found that I was articulating postmodernist positions because I didn't like all the kind of rabid agreement and sort of slightly musty kind of sense that I was getting often about values of art versus commerce and, you know, things like that that I thought were a little bit kind of in some ways outmoded. So I guess I don't like too much agreement. <laughs> An agonistic subject, sir. Well, <laughs> Prof Hamish, I have one more question for you. And mm. then I'd invite you to add or subtract anything. There may be things we've sure. discussed that, where you think you didn't quite get across what you wanted or mm-hmm. things we didn't discuss that you'd like to mention. And so before sure. that, I've just got this one last question for you, which is to ask how you do research. Mm. Oh, my God, that's a great question, isn't it? Um does anyone know how to do research? I, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, anyone who thinks they know how to do research, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'd be a bit dubious about that. I'm always doubting, in other words, the way that, that this occurs. Um, the problem I have is that I overwrite. Um, and I, I think, I don't know if you'd agree, but people often tend to either overwrite or underwrite. Um, and I write very quickly, um, you know, historically I've gotten away with that because a lot of it is crap. And so when I then put my editor hat on, I go back and I go, okay, it's 8,000 words, but really there's only three good thousand words there, right? The problem is as I've gotten older and done more editing projects, I seem to be able to edit better as I write, but I still overwrite. So what I normally try to do then is I, I watch everything. The first thing I do is to watch everything that I'm writing about and take notes. Well, I watch it first of all without note taking, and then I, I watch it again with my laptop. And then I'll do the, what I, st- sorry. Oh no, did you just say something? No, that must have been a, the gremlin in the zoom. Um, then I do the painstaking task, which I, I admit I still find actually laborious of doing the journal article searches and then just going, oh my God, you know, how much stuff, how much do I have to read now? You know, there's so much here. How am I, how am I going to work out what's worth reading? I never use research assistants. I've never, for some reason, gotten the hang of that. I, I, there's something about it that rubs me up the wrong way. So I do all my own reading and all my own sort of um, note-taking. Um, and then the worst thing is, this is probably embarrassing to admit, I then type out an, an absurd amount of quotes. So I end up with these documents full of potentially useful quotes. And then I'll put all the books away, shut all the articles down, and I start writing. And then I kind of periodically look in my quote folder and I think, oh, that's good. I'll use that. Or why am I talking about that? 
But as you can imagine, the problem then is the essay just spirals and spirals. And so what I find, just to, to make the concluding comment, is that when someone gives me a writing project, I will write too much. And the, but then I'll realise that a third of it is what they really wanted. And that's what I work into the final essay. The rest of it becomes other projects, some of which are pretty nearly ready to go. So I've sometimes gotten three different articles out of what was really one initial sort of commission. But I also admit I have a lot on my laptop of, um, you know, nearly but not quite finished articles because of this tendency to generate too much material. But I've also got friends in the digital publishing domain who have been very um, lenient with me. And I have published some ridiculously long articles in my time. We're talking 10, 15, and you won't believe this in one case, 35,000 word articles. So yes, Jump Cut, the venerable US leftist publication, um, gave me so much feedback on what was already an 8,000 word essay on Peter Watkins' magisterial film about the Paris Commune, La Commune. And they gave me so much um, productive feedback. I wrote more and more and more, and they kept asking me questions, and I kept writing more. So they published essentially a thirty-five thousand word ebook. So, as you can imagine, this is not good for my um, my publishing stats at the university. But there you go. Jump cut is a terrific <laughs> journal. Always has been. Yeah, will be. I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. It was great to work with them. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> So that the last thing is to throw to you again, uh, Prof Hamish, and ask whether there are things you'd like to add to or subtract from what we've already discussed. Well, oh, gee, there's so many things, and I'd love to interview you, Toby, about a lot of this stuff and and beyond. Um, I guess just while the focus is on my work, I guess I would say the reason getting back to my kind of little crisis moment when I decided to get back and get back on the Bergman wagon, as it were, is that I was really wanting to head in a more overtly political direction. So I have done some preparatory work on another book, which of course will now be quite a few years down the track um, on a project uh, which is really based around cinema's, incredibly long-running fascination with revolutionary history. And by that, I don't just mean, you know, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution and so forth. I mean revolutions big and small um, and also successful and unsuccessful revolutionary moments in history. So it could be, yeah, okay, the attempt to overthrow a government, but it could also be, say, a great feminist film about the attempt to overthrow a kind of patriarchal family structure um, and the way that that works within the film, not at the level of plot or anything, but at the level of space, how, you know, in so many cases, I think, this is my thesis anyway, um, the way cinema stages this is through the appropriation or, or as Honor would say, the reappropriation of space, um, urban space, suburban space, domestic space, whatever it might be. I spent so long talking about time in my own work, particularly writing on Antonioni and Tarkovsky and people like that. I'd really like to now turn to to space and, and a more overt politics. So I've got a short list of about 250 films from all over the world that I want to talk about, famous and incredibly obscure, um, that I think fit into this theme. Um, it also connects to something that I was um, speaking on actually when we last met in Oslo, uh, which is the work of uh, Osman Semben, the great Senegalese director and, and novelist. And I've written articles in about four of his films now. 
So there's a real sort of mini project there as well, which obviously sits right alongside uh, this idea that I have for this this book. So I'm really kind of quite excited to finally get to that um, and really focus on that. So I guess that would be my my final point in terms of research, at least. Professor Hamish Ford, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Toby. Look forward to seeing you next time.